Well, during our gathering tonight, we will be embarking upon a study that will be a bit different than what we typically devote our attention to in our weekly discipleship meetings. In fact, out of every lesson that I've given to you over the past two years, I'd be willing to bet that tonight's study is going to quite literally hit the closest to home. If you're here tonight as a member of First Baptist Church of Edna, this lesson will provide you with a big picture survey of the history of your local church. Now, just by a show of hands before we get too far into tonight's study, how many of you here tonight would say that you enjoy studying history? Just by a show of hands. Okay, I see some hands up. I'm, I'm glad that some of you were honest by keeping your hand down because I'd be willing to bet that not everybody here enjoys history. You know, growing up, the study of history was one of my least favorite subjects in school. I used to complain alongside all of the other athletes that I um, used to hang out with. I'm sure there were some that liked history, but most of my friends in high school, we couldn't care less about history. And we used to complain to one another and to our teachers about having to memorize all these details about people who had died long ago and about events that had happened long before we were ever born. And one of the recurring complaints that I used to make personally went along these lines. Maybe for some of you, you've made this complaint as well. What difference is this going to make in my life? I mean, what difference will learning about history make for me personally? Isn't this all just a waste of time? How do you think teachers respond to such complaints? Well, if you went to public school like I did, you'll find that they often would either just dismiss it and tell you to deal with it, like, be quiet, deal with it, we've got to get through this. Some would be a little bit more sympathetic to those concerns. They would argue that the purpose for studying history was to satisfy educational requirements and that the study of history was just a necessary part of a public school education. In other words, studying history, it's not really going to affect you at the grand scheme of your life. Like It's not going to really impact you deeply, but it is a necessary part of receiving an ed education, so you need to just kind of learn to love history in the sense of you're getting an education, you're here for eight hours a day, and you're going to start in kindergarten, work your way up through your senior year of high school, and when you take your basics in college, you're going to have to learn about history as well. So for teachers of that, of that uh, category, I at least appreciated their effort uh, as a secular-minded teacher to say, you know, you might not like history, it may not impact your life, so to speak, but it's part of education, you need to learn to appreciate it. But that didn't never really satisfy me, and it wasn't until I was a student at the Master's University that I personally became convinced that history is very valuable to study. I, I heard when I was a sophomore in college, I was 20 years old, spring semester 2015, I'll never forget this, I was in Professor Jeff Jensen's world history class, Christian school, godly man teaching the course. In fact, my brother-in-law absolutely loved Professor Jensen. Said he was his favorite professor at the Masters University, and he was a um, biology major for his undergrad. So he was even a historical. Uh, he was a, he was a historical science guy or political science guy or anything like that. He's a he's a science guy, and this was his favorite professor. And Professor Jensen, I'll never forget this. Right at the beginning of the semester, he provided me with an explanation for studying history that forever changed my perception. And I want to share that quote with you guys, because I think that if you didn't raise your hand tonight, this might change your mind as well regarding the value that comes with studying history. Listen to what Professor Jensen said. Now it's been seven years. Time flies. Um, listen to this excerpt, though. I think you'll be encouraged. And if you did raise your hand, 
Uh, this, this may be another tool uh, for you to use when your friends or your family members say, hey, why should we study history? And because you're the oddball that likes studying history, you say, well, did you know that Professor Jensen at the Masters University said X, Y, and Z? So let me share this excerpt with you, and uh, I, I think you'll be encouraged. He said, we should study history because God is the God of history. This reality is seen in that over 50% of the Bible is recorded as historical narrative. History is the context in which God is accomplishing the purposes He established from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, to study history is to study God's story, His story. To study history is to learn how God has worked in the past so we can be equipped for faithful stewardship in the present as we trust God with every detail that is to be worked out in the future. And that's the end of the quote that I wanted to share from my um, notes that I took back in Professor Jensen's world history class at the Masters University. Now, when we recognize the God-centeredness of history, as Professor Jeff Jensen noted there in that quote, it completely changes our perspective on this subject. You see, history is important to study because God is the author, sustainer, and finisher of history. Therefore, we would all do well to devote ourselves to carefully studying the subject of history, lest we prove the validity of the ancient maxim that you've all likely heard at some point in your life. Tell me if you've ever heard this one before. Those who refuse to study history are doomed to repeat it. You ever heard that before? Yeah, it sounds like something you'd find on a bumper sticker, but it's true. Those who refuse to study history are doomed to repeat it. And that's why we're here tonight. For the remainder of tonight's lesson, we're going to consider the history of First Baptist Church of Edna. And since there has yet to be a macro-level study on the historical origins and historical beliefs of FBC Edna, this lesson is my best attempt to fill that void and to accomplish this objective, to try to fill the void of the lack of a macro-level study of the history of FBC Edna, we're going to divide our study into five distinct sections. There's going to be five parts to tonight's lesson. In section one, we're going to be considering the historical origins of Baptist churches in America. In section two, we're going to be exploring how the historical origins of FBC Edna intersect with the broader history of uh, Baptistic church life in America. Section three, part three, we're going to survey the 135-year historical record of FBC Edna. Section four is going to examine the beliefs that FBC Edna have held throughout the history of the church. And in section five, the final part of our lesson tonight, we're going to engage in a time of group discussion about the history of FBC Edna. Now, before we make our way through each of these five sections, I do want to say a few words about the sources that were used for this study and about the limitations that are associated with the study of this nature. If you've ever read a doctoral dissertation, which this presentation is not a doctoral dissertation, or if you've ever read a really scholarly book before on history, any good historian worth their salt is going to, right out of the gate, they're going to note, hey, these are the sources that really impacted me, and these are the limitations that I believe are factored into this study. So I want to make sure that's clear at the very beginning. In my best attempt 
to try to, to be a quality historian of, of this local church, FBC Edna. I want you to know what sources I've used to compile the information I'll be presenting you with over the rest of tonight's lesson. I also want to be able to say, hey, these are some of the limitations that are inherent with this study. So first, the sources. In preparing for this lesson, and, I, and she's here tonight, so I, I might embarrass her, but I want to say how indebted I am to uh, Samantha Ferguson's research contributions that she made to this lesson. Um, for those of you who are listening to the recording tonight that, that may not go to our church, Samantha is a member of our youth committee here at FBC Edna. She's also one of the most active members in our church. She, she cooks the meal on Wednesday night. She's literally the hands and feet of this church in so many ways. So I want to make sure that it's on record saying that this study, this presentation could not have been done without her research assistance. So um, I want to make sure that uh, I was able to give credit where credit's due. Um, just the feedback she gave for the manuscript for tonight's lecture, her knowledge of just relevant sources here in Jackson County to look into to help us with the history. I want to say thank you to Samantha for those contributions. Any historical errors or any oversights or anything that I... A misrepresent here regarding the history of FBC Edna, that needs to be attributed to me alone. Uh, it has no bearing on Samantha's efforts in this project. I also want to express, uh, though he's not here and he's currently not at our church anymore, I do want to express my public appreciation and thanks to Jake Whitley. Uh, Jake Whitley is a former church member of FBC Edna. He's currently the pastor at River of Grace Bible Church in Bags, Wyoming. And by God's grace, FBC Edna was able to help support Jake through his studies at the Master Seminary. And it was during Jake's time as a student that he began to express an interest in the history of this church. In fact, it was in 2021 when Jake sent me some resources that he believed were immensely useful to the project or to the task of understanding the historical origins and backstory of uh, our local church here. And it would also be a disservice to Jake if I did not give credit where credit is due to him. He's been a dear friend over the past two years. And as I said in reference to Samantha just a few moments ago, if, without Jake's help, this project would not be made possible. It would not have been um, as fruitful without the insights that he shared with me. And any historical errors, overstatements, misrepresentations that are uh, attributed to this study, to this presentation I'm giving tonight, it's no bearing on Jake, it's no bearing on Samantha, it's due to my own shortcomings as a historian. So those are some shout outs I wanted to give, those are some expressions of thanks I wanted to give. Um, as far as these specific sources that were used frequently uh, over the course of this particular project, I want to give you just the main sources. Uh, Baptists in America, a book published by Columbia University Press, was helpful in my research efforts. The 2008 edition of The Cavalcade of Jackson County, published by Nortex Press as well. The 90th anniversary booklet on the history of the Guadalupe Baptist Association, Dr. Walter Jackson, the current director of missions at the Guadalupe Baptist Association office, provided me with that booklet earlier this week. I actually spent five hours going through every annual meeting minutes that they have at the Guadalupe Baptist office. He was very gracious to let me do that on Tuesday of this week. The American Baptist Yearbook of 1873, published by the University of Michigan Library, another helpful resource that I use for this project. 
the annual meeting minutes of the Guadalupe Baptist Association. Mentioned that as well uh, just a few moments ago. You literally just heard me say that. The Baptist Story from English Sect to Global Movement, published by B&H Academic. Really great resource uh, produced by some of the foremost Baptist scholars of our day. The Church Conference Meeting Minutes of FBC Edda and Baptist Temple Edna. Extremely useful resources to try to get a feel and a grasp of where our church has come from over the past several decades. The historical reports of Colorado Baptist Association and of the Edna Presbyterian Church were also very useful to this project. Um, Dr. Thomas Kidd, Dr. Tom Nettles, two of the top Baptist historians of our day, uh, used their scholarship in the realm of Baptist history broadly for piecing together this presentation. And last but certainly not least, one of the main resources that I used for this presentation is the Texas State Historical Association database. Um, anybody has access to that, literally go online, Google it, you can find out all kinds of great stuff about the history of figures and events and places here in the state of Texas. So, now you have an idea of two key people and some key sources that I use for tonight's presentation. The bulk of what's going to be presented throughout tonight's lesson comes from these particular resources that I've just mentioned, but there's also a few limitations to a project of this nature. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I want to make sure you're aware of some of the limitations that are undergirding the presentation that I'm presenting you with this evening. The first limitation deals with the intended scope of this lesson. And the final analysis, even though this is going to be a pretty long lesson, it's going to be impossible in a context like this to say everything that could ever be said about the history of FBC Ed. It's just not going to be feasible to do that. So it's important to note at the outset that this lesson is merely an attempt to provide a big picture overview of where FBC Ednick has come from and of what FBC Edna has historically believed as a congregation. So in light of that, some of these resources that I've mentioned, like the meeting minutes at Baptist Temple or FBC Edna or the Guadalupe Baptist Association minutes, like you probably have to go to those locations in order to get access to those resources, but by and large, everything that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, you can find it through a Google search. You, you can go to these sources yourself and obtain the same information I'm using and citing from at multiple times tonight. So, again, this is an introductory study. This is, an, this is the effort to lay the groundwork for people to build off of in the future. If anybody ever wishes to go deeper on the history of FBC Edna, hopefully this would be a good starting place because this is certainly not going to be the last word on this subject. Second limitation I want to note at the outset of tonight's lesson deals with the readability of the FBC Edna Church Conference meeting minutes. I'm a millennial, 27 years old. Um, yeah, we learned cursive when we were in third grade, but um, it's hard enough for me to read my own cursive at times and other people's cursive at times. And given the fact that the church conference meeting minutes um, were, were not typed prior to 1990 or 1991, um, there's some sporadic 1990 church conference meeting minutes that we found tonight. But by and large, 1990 and beyond, you've got typed church conference meeting minutes. Prior to that, they're handwritten. And they're handwritten in cursive, and those pages are really, really old. So in order to really understand a lot of what's happened at FBC Edna, one of the best resources you can go to to get access to that information is going to be in the church conference meeting minutes, the monthly business meeting minutes that takes place. The problem is... I've spent hours in those archives 
just to read the ones that have been typed up and the ones that are written in cursive, some of them are legible, some of them are really, really hard to read. So it's important for me to note just in, in what I devoted, you know, just this week alone, over 30 hours to this particular project and more than that in the past, that's just looking at stuff that's easy to read. In order to really go as deep as you probably would want to go to if you want to do like a book-length treatment of the history of FBC Edna, it's going to take a really long time and a person who's exceptionally skilled at reading handwritten documents to sit in there, decipher the handwritten church conference meeting minutes, and in doing so be able to tell you what's in those meeting minutes. So that's another limitation to this project. I couldn't read the vast majority of the handwritten meeting minutes from the past. So take that right out of the gate. That's a limitation to this project. I want to be completely open and transparent about that. And the third limitation that I'm going to mention before we dive into the outline of tonight's lesson deals with the time constraints about the nature of this project. Currently, I'm the pastor of youth education and discipleship at First Baptist Church of Edna. I'm also a husband. I'm a doctoral student. Uh, I have many hats. I'm doing community outreach through our uh, youth ministry here at FBC Edna. So while I have spent you know, over 30 hours this week and several other hours in the past looking at information relevant to this subject, I've not devoted years and years and years to this particular subject. So that, that's a limitation. This, this lesson, though it will be thorough, it's not the final say in the sense of really spending years on this project. Moreover, Samantha and I would be the first to tell you we're not professional historians. We're not being paid to do the work of a historian on a regular basis. So we probably have blind spots as well that we're not even aware of and that we have been trained to be aware of up to this point. So I just wanted to be just with all humility in light of what I'm going to present to you tonight. There are some limitations that are inextricably linked to just the length of time that we were able to devote to our researching endeavors. But even saying that, I do believe, as much as Samantha has read this, she believes this as well, what we have here tonight is faithful to the origins and development of our church insofar as it's been written. We've been very careful to stick to objective facts, things that are black and white, not a whole lot of speculation is thrown into this lecture. So in the future, for anybody who wants to fill in these gaps, maybe myself, uh, if, if I have the time maybe down the road to devote a book-length treatment to this research, um, build off of this. This is a foundation. I pray that in the future somebody will take the responsibility to devote the necessary hard work to compile an exhaustive treatment of the history of FBC Edna because there's a story waiting to be told right here in Jackson County, Texas. So having said all that by way of introduction, I know some of you are nervous now. That's a really long introduction, um, but it was an introduction nonetheless. Having said all that by way of introduction, let's now begin working through that outline I gave you just a few moments ago by transitioning into the first part or the first section. What are the historical origins of Baptist churches in America? In their seminal work, The Baptist Story, From English Sect to Global Movement, Anthony L. Shute, Nathan A. Finn, and Michael A. G. Haken provide us with a helpful summary of how Baptist theology, piety, and practice initially got to America. So, why are there Baptists on American soil? Here's a little introduction into that line of thinking as provided by those scholars in 
the work I just gave you the title for. Here's a direct quote from several pages of that work. The authors write the following, Baptists are children of the Puritans, a movement with roots stretching back to the European Reformation in the 16th century. In the 1580s and 1590s, some of the more radical-minded Puritans, despairing of Reformation within the Church of England, began to separate from the state church and organize what historians call separatist congregations. In an effort to curb the growth of separatists, a law was passed in April 1593 requiring everyone over the age of 16 to attend the church of their local parish, which comprised all who lived within a certain geographic boundary. Failure to do so for an entire month meant imprisonment. If three months following an individual's release from prison, they still refused to conform, that person was then to be given a choice of exile or death. The context of persecution for separatist beliefs would eventually lead a man by the name of John Robinson and about a hundred other separatists to relocate to Leiden. And from Leiden, Robinson's congregation, who became known as the Pilgrims, you guys have heard the story of the Pilgrims, I'm sure, they eventually sailed to America on board the Mayflower, there it is, some of you guys learned about this in school, and landed at Plymouth in southeastern Massachusetts in 1620. So by 1620, you have separatists from the Church of England in America, and it is these figures, these separatists, who would create a context in which being a Baptist was even a legal possibility. Whereas being a Christian in England meant belonging to a state church, being a Christian in America meant that you would have the freedom to belong to a church that was not under the direct authority and supervision of a state. In the New World, the privilege of having religious liberty paved the way for the founding of the first Baptist churches on American soil. According to Bill J. Leonard's volume, Baptists in America, it was in Providence, Rhode Island, Leonard says, probably in 1638, that Roger Williams and others founded the first Baptist church in America. Soon thereafter, another Baptist congregation was born at Newport, Rhode Island, under the leadership of Dr. John Clark. Clark was instrumental in founding the Newport colony, organizing a Baptist church there, and securing a charter from the English crown in 1663. Now, Leonard goes on to note that Baptist ideas eventually began to spread to other sections of New England, and by the end of the 17th century, that is the end of the 1600s, Baptist churches would also be founded in the southern parts of the New World. We know this to be true as early as 1696, because it was during that year in which the first Baptist church of Charleston, South Carolina, was established in the south. And that church, having originally been founded in Kittery, Maine, in the year 1682. So 1696, you got Baptist churches which began in New England with the Purit or with the pilgrims who um, come from Puritan origin. They've spread from New England and they've began to meander down and plant Baptist churches in the South. That's in 1696. So by the start of the 18th century, Baptist churches were beginning to populate the totality of the newly discovered American territories. Now, who were these Baptists? Well, when considered broadly, the Baptist churches of this era could be identified in one of two categories. There were, on the one hand, congregations that identified as general Baptist churches, 
And on the other hand, there were congregations that identified as particular Baptist churches. As noted in the Baptist story from English sect to global movement, same book that we quoted from just a few moments ago, both of these classifications of Baptist churches, whether general Baptist or particular Baptist, they would have shared like-mindedness on at least seven key distinctives. So if you're a Baptist in America at the turn of the 18th century, you would have embraced each of these seven distinctives. Let me give those distinctives to you. Number one, a recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ over every dimension of faith and practice. Second, local church membership reserved for those who have made a credible profession of faith and for those who have been baptized by immersion. Third, church members united by an agreed-upon doctrinal statement. Fourth, Church discipline is utilized as a means of safeguarding the orthodoxy and orthopraxy of the local church. That just means orthodoxy, uh, right doctrine, orthopraxy, right application of doctrine. So church discipline is utilized as a means of protecting or safeguarding right doctrine and right application of doctrine. Number five, the local church understood as Christ ruled, elder led, deacon served, and congregationally governed. Six. Local churches understood as autonomous assemblies, but cooperative and like-minded missional endeavors. And number seven, the church and state understood as separate entities with distinct God-ordained purposes. So again, these are the seven unifying distinctives or, or, or characteristics that would have united general Baptist congregations and particular Baptist congregations at the start of the 18th century. But there are also specific and historically observable differences that we can see between a general Baptist congregation and a particular Baptist congregation. And while there are many debates to this day by Baptist historians as to all the finer intricacies and nuances of what those differences were, there is one fundamental difference that gets to the heart and soul of what differentiated a general Baptist from a particular Baptist. Let me pose it to you in the form of a question. Was Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement at the cross general? That is to say, did Christ die to atone for the sins of every person who would ever live until the end of human history? Or was Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement at the cross particular? That is to say, did Christ die to atone for the sins of every person who would ever believe until the end of human history? That's the dividing line between a general Baptist and a particular Baptist in the final analysis, the most fundamental level. That's the difference. General Baptists believed that Christ died for every person who would ever live. Particular Baptists believed that Christ's death was exclusively for the elect. And while both of these categories of churches would um, be present there in America at the turn of the 18th century, and both of those types of churches would experience some levels of growth, the testimony of history tells us this. Particular Baptist churches experienced the greatest flourishing during the 18th century. I think you'll be interested by this historical statistic. In a 1793 survey conducted by the Baptist historian John Asplund, it was estimated that there were 1,032 Baptist congregations in America. Okay, Almost the end of the 18th century, you've got 1,032 Baptist churches. 
And of those 1,032 Baptist churches, 956 of them were particular Baptists. Stated differently, nearly 93% of Baptist churches at the beginning of the 19th century self-identified as particular Baptists. This statistic demonstrates the historical roots of American Baptist theology and those roots are predominantly encapsulated, predominantly ingrained in the particular Baptist tradition. It's against this historical backdrop that we can now turn our attention to observing how the historical background of FBC Edna, how the historical origins of FBC Edna intersects with the American Baptist church life of that particular generation, a church life that was overwhelmingly particular Baptist in nature. So we've now considered the historical origins of Baptist churches in America. That brings us to the second section of tonight's lesson that we'll be developing together, again in the form of a question. How do the historical origins of FBC Edna intersect, come together with, the broader history of Baptist church life in America? Where's the connection between the historical origins of FBC Edna and Baptist church life in America? Well, there's many ways you could go about answering this question, but in the final analysis, this question is impossible to answer without first understanding the life and ministry of Z.N. Morrell. There are a few figures from 19th century Baptist history, particularly in the state of Texas, that are as important to the Baptist denominational development as Z.N. Morrell. If you start with Morrell, you have a clear path to tracing the eventual founding of FBC Edna in the late 19th century, so it is crucial for us tonight to devote careful attention to this figure at this stage of our lesson. So who was Z.N. Morrell? Allow me to provide you with an introduction to this colossal man as derived from the biographical sketch that's provided by the Texas State Historical Association. If you keep up with the FBC Edna Facebook page activity, you'll recall that this resource was shared on the public Facebook page on March 25th, 2022. So for the purposes of this presentation, I have modified the following excerpt for readability and to emphasize certain facts that were significant in Morell's life. Let me read you a modification of that quote. Zian Morell, commonly known as Wildcat Morell, how's that for a nickname, was born on January 17, 1803 in South Carolina. His family moved to Tennessee when he was 13, and despite never receiving a formal education, Morell would become a Baptist minister at the age of 18. It was also at the age of 18 when Morell would marry Clarice Hayes on August 23, 1821. The couple would go on to have four children together, and they would be married for 22 years before Clarice's untimely death in 1843. Between the year 1821 and 1843, Morell would experience a very busy life in ministry. He would preach throughout Tennessee for a period of 14 years before moving to Mississippi in 1835. This move was precipitated by Morell's continual struggle with lung problems and the counsel he received from doctors to move to the southern part of America where the climate was warmer and more humid. Upon arriving to 
Yalabusha County, Mississippi in 1835. Morrell would be involved in the founding of three Baptist churches before ultimately choosing to move his family to Texas in 1836. His family would eventually settle in Washington on the Brazos in 1837, and it was in 1837 when Morrell would co-found one of the first Baptist churches in Texas. He would continue to balance service in various ministry capacities for the next five years alongside efforts to defend the new Republic of Texas from both Indians and the Mexican Army, respectively. After his wife passed away in 1843, Morrell would marry Deliah Harlan on October 27, 1845. For the next 15 years, Morrell would devote even more effort to his ministry endeavors throughout the state of Texas. He would be integral in the raising of funds for Baylor University, and he would oversee several domestic missions under the appointment of the Southern Baptist Convention. Part of Morrell's domestic missions responsibilities would include monthly trips from Cameron to Corsicana, Texas, a 300-mile round trip that he would complete on a monthly basis via horseback. And in addition to these monthly obligations, Morrell was also devoted to the health of local churches throughout South Texas. On top of his role in co-founding the Baptist, excuse me, the Union Baptist Association in 1840, Morrell would also serve as the co-founder of many Baptist churches and local associations between 1845 and 1860. The founding of the Colorado Baptist Association in 1847, the Trinity River Association in 1848, the Leon River Association in 1858, and the Waco Association in 1860 can all be tied to the direct influence of Z.N. Morell. Moreover, standing in line with his particular Baptist forefathers, Morell modeled an unwavering commitment to sound doctrine. Morell was zealous to ensure that every church partnering with the associations he founded adhered to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. Unfortunately, Morell would not be equally as zealous about investing in his marriage to his second wife. After 15 years of being largely absent from home, Morell's second wife divorced him in 1860. He would spend the remainder of his life battling health problems as a single man, but he never grew weary in his commitment to advancing Baptist theology, piety, and practice in the state of Texas. Until his death on December 19, 1883, Morell would serve as a major contributor to the Texas Baptist Herald, providing a Baptist perspective on a number of theological, pastoral, and missionary-related issues and perhaps the most notable surviving work from Z.N. Morell is his record of Baptist history in Texas, being published in 1872, entitled Flowers and Fruits from the Wilderness, or 46 Years in Texas and Two Winters in Honduras. End quote. I don't think I've ever done a quote that long, so I need to take a drink. Wow. That was a quote. Yeah, that's all from the Texas State Historical Association. So that's Z.N. Morell, Z.N. Wildcat Morell. And while he was certainly far from perfect, I think we'd all agree after reading that lengthy biographical sketch that Morell was a man that God used in many mighty ways in establishing a Baptist presence in Texas throughout the 19th century. Having now shared this biographical sketch with you and having made the comment about how long that quote was from the Texas State Historical Association, 
I can guarantee that at least one of you guys here tonight is asking this. If you haven't asked the question by now, I don't know what's wrong with you because I would be asking the question by now. What does any of this have to do with FBC Edna? I mean, somebody's asked that question by now. Those of you who haven't fallen asleep just yet. Anyways, uh, that's, that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> as I noted in the biographical sketch, Morell was one of the co-founders of the Colorado Baptist Association in 1847. And according to the historical report of the Colorado Baptist Association, the first moderator who was installed under the supervision of Morell was a man by the name of Richard Ellis. So you have Morell, he founds the Colorado Baptist Association, and he installs the first moderator of that association, Richard Ellis. Richard Ellis was originally from Virginia, but he came with his family to Texas in the year 1837. By his own admission, Ellis initially came to Texas in an effort to run away from God's call on his life to preach. Nevertheless, after much persuasion and support from others, Ellis would surrender to God's calling upon his life and be ordained into gospel ministry at Plum Grove Church, Fayetteville, in 1842. I want you to hear Morell's testimony about Richard Ellis as contained in the 90th anniversary booklet on the history of the Guadalupe Baptist Association. Let's give you a little picture of the kind of man and minister that Ellis was. And again, I quote from Morell. Ellis was a man of strong mind, Morell says. His words were always acceptable and his speech of great power. Zealous in the great cause he espoused, he devoted to it all the energies of his manhood. And in the pulpit, every movement of his body, every flash of his eye, and every utterance of his tongue revealed the soul of earnestness. End quote. I think it'd be safe to say that Morell had a very lofty opinion of Richard Ellis, so it should come as no surprise that he would be installed as the first moderator of the Colorado Baptist Association, one of the first associations that Morell had a hand in founding. Now, why is it significant that Richard Ellis would serve as moderator? Well, as moderator, Ellis would have been tasked with overseeing the doctrinal distinctives and the missional endeavors of the churches who partnered with the Colorado Baptist Association. What would that have looked like? Well, it would have included ensuring that all partnering churches in the Colorado Baptist Association subscribe to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. Many of you have been flipping through that pamphlet over the course of our time together tonight, so glad to see you're acquainting yourself with that doctrinal statement. Another thing that Ellis would have been tasked with stewarding was ensuring that all partnering churches of the Colorado Baptist Association were modeling the Great Commission mandate in a distinctly Baptist way. And finally, Ellis would have been charged with ensuring that the founding of new churches within the Colorado Baptist Association would likewise model those distinctives. So, what's Ellis doing under the supervision and the charge of Zian Morrell? He's trying to, for the churches that are already present, he's trying to get them to embrace the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith as a distinctly Baptistic way of understanding how God's Word fits together. He wants them to be proponents of sound doctrine. He wants to be able to influence the missionary endeavors that these Baptist churches would be carrying out or being done so in a way that's distinctly Baptistic. And, of course, 
He wants to oversee the founding and the planting of new churches that would hold and subscribe to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith and undertake missionary endeavors that are thoroughly and consistently Baptistic in nature. And of course, we as good Baptists would say being Baptistic is simply being biblical in nature. Now, within six years of Ellis's appointment as moderator of the Colorado Baptist Association, the first Baptist church was founded in Jackson County. Notice how I didn't say the first church. The first Baptist church was founded in Jackson County. The Presbyterians got here first. Um, anyways, the name of that church was Enon Baptist Church, First Baptist Church in Jackson County, Enon Baptist Church. And by virtue of its location being west of the Colorado River, that church would have been a partnering church with the Colorado Baptist Association from the moment of his inception, or of its inception, rather, as a church. Now, although we don't know many details about who pastored Enon Baptist Church from 1853 to 1855, we know the church was founded in 1853. We don't know who pastored it for those two years. But we do know this. In 1856, a man by the name of Joseph I. Loudermilk would move to Jackson County, and he would become the pastor of Enon Baptist Church until his death in 1880. In fact, if you drive about 10 miles north of Edna on Highway 111, you'll find that there is a historical landmarker that testifies to these historical details. You know, maybe one of these days we can take a field trip to the Enon Cemetery together, and we can read this sign, because it's right there. Right next to the Enon Cemetery, you will find this historical landmarker testifying to the, the first extended pastor who served at Enon Baptist Church, namely Joseph I. Loudermore. Now, here's where things get interesting. Just seven years after the death of Joseph I. Loudermilk, Enon Baptist Church would go on to plant the First Baptist Church of Edna on March 23, 1887. And to what association would FBC Edna initially belong to? Well, according to the 2008 edition of the Cavalcade of Jackson County, FBC Edna was founded as a partnering church in the Colorado Baptist Association. As such... Like the church from which it originated, FBC Edna would have subscribed to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith and would have been held to modeling the same missional commitments that were rooted in Morell's co-founding of the Colorado Baptist Association. Are you starting to see the historical intersection we've established now between FBC Edna and the broader Baptistic life that existed in 18th and 19th century America in the closing decades of the 18th century. Baptist church life was predominantly filled with particular Baptist congregations. Z.N. Morrell was born into that context at the turn of the 19th century, and he would go on to champion particular Baptist theology, piety, and practice for nearly 60 years of vocational ministry. Upon co-founding the Colorado Baptist Association in 1847, Z.N. Morrell oversaw the installment of Richard Ellis as its first moderator. Ellis's installment allowed for Morrell's theological and missional commitments to be established as the culture that was to be experienced throughout the Colorado Baptist Association. And under the supervision of the Colorado Baptist Association, Enon Baptist Church was planted within six years of Ellis's installment as the moderator of that association. 
As such, Enon Baptist Church would have been required to subscribe to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith and would have embraced the shared missional commitments of the Colorado Baptist Association under the leadership of Richard Ellis as moderator, all of which was originally championed by Zian Morell, who came from the particular Baptist theological tradition from the very earliest days of his life. And then, my friends, in 1887, 34 years after the planting of Enon Baptist Church, the first Baptist Church of Edna was planted by Enon Baptist Church. And like Enon Baptist Church, FBC Edna would be a partnering church with the Colorado Baptist Association. My friends, this is the 18th and 19th century intersection between the broader history of Baptist church life in America and the historical origins of our local church. And it is against this backdrop of the intersection that we have just established that we can now effectively transition into a survey of the 135-year history of our local church. So up to this point in our lesson, if you're still with me, we've considered the historical origins of Baptist churches in America. We've explored the historical intersection between the broader history of Baptist church life in America and the historical origins of FBC Edna. And as we enter into the third section of tonight's lesson, we're now going to be focusing on the historical record of FBC Edna. What is the historical record of the First Baptist Church of Edna, Texas. Well, before we get too far into the weeds of the history of FBC Edna, perhaps it will be useful to first mention the fact that our church has not always been named First Baptist Church of Edna. When the church was founded in 1887, the church was simply named the Edna Baptist Church, fitting name, Baptist Church, City of Edna. It works. Fast forward to 1913. The name of the church was changed, a lot longer of a name, Edna Missionary Baptist Church of Christ by Pastor J.H. Hardy. Edna Missionary Baptist Church of Christ by Pastor J.H. Hardy. Although an exact date cannot be verified, shortly after J.H. Hardy's tenure at FBC Edna, the church got together and decided, now we like the old name better, so we're going to be uh, just the Edna Baptist Church again. So some point after Hardy's tenure, they changed the name back to Edna Baptist Church. And then, come 1946, the name of our church was changed once for all to First Baptist Church of Edna. And that's been the official name of our church for the past 76 years. But regardless of whatever name is used, what's in a name, as the old saying goes, this is the church to which you and I belong, most of you, that is. And if you're listening, you're, you could be at a different church. I know that as well. But for most of us here tonight, we belong to First Baptist Church of Edna. And there's a rich history that needs to be told, that needs to be learned, that needs to be studied, that needs to be committed to. And that's what we're hopefully going to get out of this portion of our lesson. As I noted in the 2008 edition of the Cavalcade of Jackson County, the town of Edna was established in 1882 due to a desire to be in close proximity to the railroad system that passed through Jackson County. Because of its proximity to the railroad, Edna would soon become the center of commercial and residential life in 19th century Jackson County. 
Because of Edna's surging population growth, the congregation of Enon Baptist Church soon recognized that it had a responsibility to be a witnessing presence in the newly founded town. So beginning in 1884, the pastor of Enon Baptist Church, a man by the name of W.I. Cole, began to preach in Edna on the fourth Sunday of every month. And it would be an understatement to say that Cole's outreach efforts would not be an effective in the community of Edna. It was very effective in the community of Edna. But there's also a strategic element to this outreach effort. Planning a church in Edna was the wisest decision for the survival of a Baptist congregation in Jackson County. Why do I say that? Well, by, uh, by 1890, Enon Baptist Church would cease to exist. And self-identifying Baptists in Jackson County would begin attending FBC Edna in droves. So, I mean, think about this, guys. 1882, you've got the railroad system established. You had your pastor of 24 years uh, who, who passed away in 1880. And then in, in less than a decade, your church is no longer here. So to, to survive as Baptists in that day, there needed to be a Baptist church in the hub of where residential and commercial life was flourishing in Jackson County. Now, despite the eventual flourishing of this church in the early 20th century um, and beyond, it's important that we spend a little bit of time analyzing the, the, the less flourishing days of FBC Edna. We can't ignore or overlook the humble origins of this local church. In 1887, just three years after beginning outreach efforts in Edna, the first Baptist church of Edna was planted by six charter members of Enon Baptist Church. Think about that. If you're going to have a new church in a newly established city, would you just send six people to plant such a church? Maybe, maybe not. I guess it depends on who the six people were. But six people... Look at our church today, look at the beautiful building, look at all the, the money and all the history of things that have happened in those church walls. Start with six people, okay? And we only know the names of four of the charter members. So six people, we only have names of four, and those four charter members that we do know of are listed in the 2008 edition of the Cavalcade of Jackson County as follows. There is a man by the name of J.N. Pumphrey who would serve as the first deacon of FBC Edna. A man by the name of Dr. Baylor. Mr. Sellers who would serve as the first church clerk of FBC Edna. And Mrs. Walter Garrett. Those are the four names we know of as charter members. In addition to these four charter members, Reverend D.S. Snodgrass and Reverend B.F. Miller oversaw the initial organization of FBC Edna. And it's interesting to note that prior to his work in overseeing the planning of FBC Edna, Reverend Miller served as the pastor of Salem Baptist Church, Hallettsville, from 1886 to 1891. And if you're interested in looking at this information for further historical analysis, you can just Google Salem Baptist Church, Hallettsville, Reverend B.F. Miller. And you're going to find the Lavaca County Historical Database, uh, the Lavaca County History website, to be more precise with the name. And that church still exists to this day. I mean, we could hop in the car right now and drive up to Ezel, Texas. You'll find the building in which this church um, is located. You guys are laughing. I must not have 
pronounce the name right. Is it Ezel? Ezel. Ezel. Well, if anyone listening to this is from Ezel or at Salem Baptist Church, I apologize. Um, I'm from the Dallas area, so obviously I never learned how to pronounce names correctly. And I got some laughs. Now, pretty interesting piece of information that we found here in our studies. Actually, um, at this part in the sermon I mentioned earlier, um, well, more of a lecture, I don't know if this is a sermon, I haven't heard any amens tonight, but um, at this portion in the lesson, Samantha really helped me out, because there's some really interesting figures here that you, you could do a full-on investigation into, and, and who knows what kind of really fascinating details you'd find. But the, the, the figure named Dr. Baylor, he was instrumental in the formation of the Edna Presbyterian Church in 1855, and he's also listed as one of the charter members of First Baptist Church Edna in 1887. So I bring this up in light of the fact that FBC Edna was organized in the Edna Presbyterian Church. It would initially hold worship services in a house not far away from the location of the Edna Presbyterian Church. So it made me wonder, and Samantha's the one that put me on this thought process. It's a very interesting thought to have. But is it possible that the same Dr. Baylor involved in the founding of the Edna Presbyterian Church became a Southern Baptist? Is that what happened? Because he's, if it's the same guy, which probably is in those days, I mean, it's possible there were two Dr. Baylors running around in Jackson County, but... I mean, is, is it possible that a man who founded the Edna Presbyterian Church in 1855 in just 32 years, he's now a Southern Baptist for whatever reason? I mean, there's an interesting story behind that waiting to be explored at greater length in the future. But for our purposes tonight, I want to transition now into an excerpt from the April 20th, 1887 edition of the Texas Baptist Herald. In that excerpt, the Texas Baptist Herald, we find this account of the founding of FBC Edna. So we're going to see a first-hand account of what the founding of FBC Edna was like. It was, so, so essentially, it's like getting into a time machine, and we're going, to, we're going to live it together right now. Okay? Let me read you a direct quote from that report. Elders, B.F. Miller of Hallettsville. Elders. I thought Baptists didn't have elders. Oh, wait, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, Elder B.F. Miller of Hallettsville and D.S. Snodgrass, missionary pastor at Edna, met the Baptists of that place who had letters of dismission from the Enon Church in the Presbyterian House of Worship Saturday, March 26th. Elder Miller acted as secretary of the presbytery, that just means elder board, and read the letters, articles of faith, in church, govern, uh, church covenant, rather, which were adopted. The church was declared duly organized, the hand of recognition extended by the presbytery, and the members of Enon Church were present. Prayer was offered by Elder Miller. On Sunday at 11 a.m., Elder Miller preached a stirring sermon on the love of Christ, and took a collection for associational missions, I love this, amounting to $6.05. So 
Services were held at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. and continued through the week by Dr. F. Kiefer and the pastor to the edification and strengthening of the church and the benefit of the whole community. Brother Kiefer displayed the most remarkable ability to explain the great salvation and vindicate the divine origins of the Bible and to urge the claims of Jesus to universal acceptation. I don't know why they didn't just use the term acceptance, but acceptation, that's the word he chose to use in the article. Continuing on now, his sermons on experimental religion, the power of faith, and the necessity of the great spiritual change and the ability of Jesus to save were clear, scriptural, forcible, and attended by the convincing power of the Spirit, causing a deep solemnity and a mighty heart searching among professors and unbelievers. That's believers and unbelievers. A genuine spirit of revival had just begun to work when the services had to close, leaving several earnest inquirers for the way of life up for prayers. Long will the eight members of the church and the attending brethren from Enon and the good people of Edna who hospitably and cordially entertained us cherish the memory of Brother Kiefer's earnest, affectionate, and able appeals in clear presentations of divine truth. They wrote really long sentences back then, as you can tell. The article concludes with this sentence. Indeed, his visit to Edna marked an era in its spiritual interests that will ever be remembered with gratitude to God, end quote. And I don't know about you guys, but that makes my heart soar to the, to the heights of heaven, thinking about being in that venue, having people there who were that passionate about truth, about the Word of God, right here. People as a part of our church using the Word of God as the means to reach the community. Not programs, not the wisdom of men, but God's word being preached by a man called of God and equipped of God to preach. It's an incredible testimony to the grace and power of the Most High. Now, within seven years after its remarkable founding, FBC Edna would go on to purchase property at the corner of Cottonwood Street and would eventually go on to build its first permanent building. The cost of the land purchase was very expensive in those days, $50. So all this territory right here, uh, literally, I'm facing it right now. I'm in my living room giving this message to youth and adult leaders. And it's, it's the corner that we're literally at right now, all of that, 50 bucks to purchase it all. And upon its completion, upon the permanent building's completion, the first building was dedicated to J.M. Carroll on June 17, 1894. And again, got to give credit where... Credit is due here to Samantha. Um, there's another interesting point of information on this subject pertaining to the involvement of a man by the name of W.N. Martin in donating land to both Edna Baptist Church and Edna Presbyterian Church. Now, would there be a relation? Uh, I've been corrected. It's Marvin. Sorry to Mr. Marvin. Um, uh, thank you, Samantha, for the clarification there. Um, now, I wonder, just open-ended question here, would this guy possibly, I guess if he's not Martin, he's Marvin, so he wouldn't be related to the Martin family, so I just answered my own question. But in any case, Mr. W.N. Marvin donated land to both the Edna Baptist Church and the Edna Presbyterian Church. So either this guy had a, had a conversion from Presbyterianism to, to Baptist 
thought, or he was just a wealthy, generous man and was able to donate money out of the surplus of his financial resources. Um, but regardless of what the case may be, if you look at the history of the Edna Presbyterian Church that's recorded online, if you read the 2008 edition of the Jackson County Cavalcade, if you look at the 90th anniversary booklet on the history of the Guadalupe Baptist Association, if you look at all those resources, this unassuming man who none of us have ever heard of before, he had an extensive hand to play in making land available for where our church would ultimately be located at in terms of having a permanent building and, of course, the Presbyterian Church at that point in time as well. So um, if any of you guys listening to uh, this message tonight, or especially you on the recording who's interested in looking at an obscure figure, again, obscure but not unnoticed, go look at W.N. Marvin's life. Go try to find some information about that connection. There is a book waiting to be written there. Now, um, having said that, I've mentioned a few things about the building projects that were devoted to the, the development of the facilities that we have here at FBC Edna. Um, we've been at the corner of Cottonwood for the past 128 years, where uh, FBC Edna has been gathering. Uh, we also see now that there are some parsonages that are associated with FBC Edna. The, these two plots of land right here, uh, Brother Robert's Parsonage, my Parsonage, those were progressively built and remodeled and remodeled. This house has probably been remodeled several times. Um, There's some dates that are provided in the cavalcade of Jackson County that they're kind of confusing as to when it's talking about when the house was built versus when it's remodeled. And it may have even indicated that one house was torn down and then another one was built in its place. I, I couldn't follow it, so... If you're listening to this and you have a copy of the cavalcade, um, maybe you'd better understand it than I did in preparing for tonight's message. But in any case, like these parsonages right here next to the church, they've either been around for a really long time or there were older parsonages there and they, they just really remodeled a lot or they tore it down and, and, and built a new one. The one thing that I was able to find that was clear as day is where Brother Alec and Brittany live right now, our music minister and his family, uh, the parsonage on Brody Street, built in 1974. So we have a concrete date. That house has been there since 1974 in its um, current condition. We also know that the Student Ministries building, built in 1978, so that structure right there across from us, caddy corner to my house, 1978 when that was built. So coming up on 50 years for the SMB and for Brother Alex Parsonage. As we know, by God's grace, the Student Ministries building, affectionately known by us here in Edna as the SMB, has been used for the purpose of discipling youth and hosting community outreach events for the past 44 years. It's truly remarkable to see all that the Lord can do when a church establishes deep roots into a community um, like FBC Edna has for a really long period of time. Now, after reaching the milestone of obtaining a permanent location for corporate worship in 1893, FBC Edna would go on to incorporate several ministries within the life of the church. This was kind of cool to find out in my research. R.T. Baylor organized the church's first Sunday school program in 1894, and in 1898, 
the ladies' auxiliary ministry was organized within the walls of FBC Ed. Now, many of you guys know it, of, its, of its name that it would eventually come to be, WMU. Anybody familiar with that title? WMU, Women's Missionary Union, started in 1898. They still meet through our church to this day. Of course, Sunday school, we've got Sunday school classes, goes back to 1894. So just think about that when you're... I know that the building has gone through some remodels since the 1890s. But guys, if you're at FBCN, if you're a member, like over 100 years ago, there were people right there, like right on that plot of land in, in their building, whatever that looked like. They were having Sunday school. They were worshiping the living God. They were doing everything that you and I do. I think that's pretty cool to think about. Christianity goes far back further than just your grandparents. I don't know of any grandparents that are 100 and, I guess that'd be, a, uh, not good at math off the top of my head, 120 years or so. I don't think we have any 120-year-olds in our, in our uh, church right now. But guys, we got ministries to this day go back 120 years, and by the grace of God, they're still going on at FBCN. Pretty cool stuff to consider. Um, moreover, having said that, from the moment of its inception, from the moment of it being planted, FBC Edna would be immensely involved with the missional endeavors of the Colorado Baptist Association until a territorial adjustment led to their joining of the Guadalupe Baptist Association in 1920. So from 1887 to 1920, FBC Edna is in the Colorado Baptist Association. 1920 comes around, there's an adjustment in territory. They're part of the Guadalupe Baptist Association, which is where they've been at since 1920. To this day, FBC Edna continues to partner with the Guadalupe Baptist Association's domestic and international missionary endeavors, and this is a historical observation that we should certainly praise God for. But as we continue to survey the historical record of FBC Edna, I want us now to transition into a survey of those who have served in the role of senior pastor at our church. Let's look at the role of senior pastor pastor from 1887 to 2022 here at FBC Edna. The following chronology that I'm going to give to you, again, public knowledge, it's accessible in the 2008 edition of the Cavalcade of Jackson County. Look at this chronology here of men who have served as senior pastor at our church. I'm going to give you the name and the date ranges, the year ranges rather, to be more precise. D.S. Snodgrass, 1891. T.R. Cobble, 1891 to 1892. M.M. Wadsworth, 1892 to 1893. A.S. Poindexter, 1893 to 1906-1908-T.O.Sally-1908-1913-J.H.Hardy-1913-1915-A.P.Smith-1916-1917-J.W.Storms-1917-1919-W.J.Downing-1920-1921-D.P.Earhart-1922-1923 1922 to 1923, B.B. Broom, 1924 to 1925, W.E. Parrott, 1925 to 1927, 
M.C. Moore, 1928 to 1931. L.E. Barrett, 1931 to 1947. R.F. Royal, interim pastor. Carl J. Schomach, 1948-1955-W.L.Wouton-1956-1960-J.L.Moore-1961-1962-James-Franklin-1963-1965-Joe-Webb-1966-1993-Bob-Elliott-interim-pastor-Jim-Gilbert-1993-2001-J.V.Hel
Financial needs were usually addressed individually, a committee being appointed to raise funds for each need. It was only in 1922 that a unified budget was adopted that led gradually to a more satisfactory method of supporting the church through consistent giving of tithes and offerings by church members. End quote of that excerpt. This is the context that FBC Edna originated from. I mentioned earlier, humble origins. I mean, this is an exceedingly poor context. Rural South Texas, late 1800s, early 1900s. The railroad's not even coming through here until the end of the 1800s. When you couple this reality with the fact that pastors were already splitting time preaching at various local churches... It should come as no surprise to us that it would have been very difficult keeping a senior pastor employed for any extended period of time until roughly 60 years after FBC Edna's inception. Furthermore, as noted in the 2008 edition of the Cavalcade of Jackson County, there was significant turnover in the role of senior pastor from 1955 to 1966. During that time span, a group of the congregation of FBC Edna left the church and formed Baptist Temple Edna. So you have the first church split take place also in the middle of the 20th century. You've got poverty that you're dealing with, the pastoral turnover, and the first 60 years of the church's existence, and then right smack dab in the middle of the 20th century, you've got about 11 or 12 years of turnover after turnover after turnover because the church... Potentially, could have been, there could have been disarray in the church regarding uh, doctrinal issues. We don't know that for a fact. Um, there, there could have been concern about the way the church functioned by the congregation. Um, I don't have any objective indication as to what caused the church split at FBC Edna. I've read the Baptist Temple Edna business meeting minutes from 1955 to 1956. I've told you again, very hard to make out what's being written in that time period at our, um, in our church conference meeting minute archives from that date. A lot of our church conference meeting minutes are not even really in uh, a chronological order, so I, I don't have the answers as to what caused the church to split. But here's what I did find on this note. It may give us a little bit of a clue as to what caused some of the pastoral turnover in the mid-20th century, uh, and at least why the split took place. Again, nothing concrete. I'm not, I'm not giving any objective evidence here. So to the listener, um, I'm just going to share with you an excerpt that I found on April 26, 1955 from the Baptist Temple Business Meeting Minutes. Here's a direct excerpt from those meeting minutes. Take it as you want to take it. This is all I've got. Quote, the chairman of the business meeting stated that we wanted this new church, Baptist Temple Edna, to be a true democracy. No one man nor group of persons ruling, but all the people having a voice in all matters. End quote. So was it church politics? Was it doctrinal issues? Was it something else? I don't know. The Lord knows. Maybe, just maybe, it's in our meeting minutes an explanation that I was not able to uncover for this um, lesson, which, of course, like I mentioned at the beginning, a limitation to this study. But in any case, if you're listening to this recording, if you're here tonight, you want to go do some digging, another really important piece of our church's history that 
is a mystery that is largely left unresolved. So, there was some pastoral turnover in the early part of our church's history and even in the mid-20th century, but things began to change for the better on that front in 1966. It was not until 1966 in which FBC Edna began to really experience consistency in the role of senior pastor. Aside from the men who served in the role of interim pastor between 1966 and the present day in 2022, each senior pastor from the year 1966 has served in their role for at least seven years. Two of those men, Brother Robert and Joe Webb, served at this church for at least a decade. Brother Robert's been here for going on 11 years in October. Joe Webb was here for, I think it was 24 years. Let's see. Go back. 24, 27 years. 27 years. Almost three decades. So that's a significant improvement from... You know, you're, you're, you've got guys that are barely lasting a year from 19 or from 1891, which is the first recording of the chronology of senior pastors given in the cavalcade of Jackson County. You've got guys who are barely list, uh, lasting a year from 1891 to 1948. Then you have a guy that lasts seven years finally, and then you get to the mid uh, 20th century. You got more turnover there in the middle of the 20th century, and then finally 1966 comes. Joe Webb comes here, and they got a guy here for almost three decades, and then every guy since has served for at least seven years. We should praise God for that consistency that's came to this church in those years from 1966. As we draw this section of tonight's lecture to a conclusion, though, I I do want to share one final quote with you. One final quote from the 90th anniversary booklet on the Guadalupe Baptist Association's history. Given that there is so much that can be said and discovered about the 135-year history of FBC Edna, especially if somebody skilled enough would take the time to decipher the handwritten church conference meeting minutes that I myself am not able to interpret, I believe the following quote puts a really nice finishing touch on this part of our study. Listen to this quote from the GBA 90th anniversary booklet on its history. It says, It is impossible in this brief account to detail all the significant events in the history of the Edna Baptist Church. A summary of matters of concern through the years would include finding a pastor. This is going to come as a surprise to you guys. Exercising church discipline. That tells me that there's some stories in those church conference meeting minutes that are just waiting to be brought to light. Um, so you got finding a pastor, exercising church discipline, raising funds, receiving members, conducting evangelistic meetings, and providing for buildings in which to worship and study the Bible. Today, the First Baptist Church of Edna moves forward in its proud history. Its members are proud of the past years, but they believe the best days of ministry are yet ahead. FBC Edna's stated purpose is to proclaim God's greatness, present the gospel, promote spiritual growth, and provide ministry for all people in Jesus' name. End quote. My friends, may First Baptist Church of Edna be found faithful in living out its own stated purpose for however long God gives them opportunity to do so. And we now come to the fourth section of tonight's lesson on the history of FBC Edna.
In section one, we consider the historical origins of FBC Edna, or excuse me, the historical origins of Baptist churches in America. Section two was the historical origins of FBC Edna and how those origins intersect with the broader Baptistic origins and the United States of America. Section three, which we just covered, was the 135-year historical record of FBC Edna. And now we're in section four. In section four, we're going to spend some time examining the historical beliefs of FBC Edna. What has First Baptist Church Edna believed throughout the course of its history? Let's take a look at that question together more closely. As we previously noted earlier in our lecture, FBC Edna was planted as a partnering church in the Colorado Baptist Association. By virtue of that partnership, FBC Edna would have been required to subscribe to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith and adhere to the missional convictions that were espoused by the Colorado Baptist Association. Furthermore, when FBC Edna joined the Guadalupe Baptist Association, there is attesting evidence that this local association likewise adhered to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. What is something the Colorado Baptist Association held to, my friends? The Guadalupe Baptist Association likewise held to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. How do I know this? Well, in the FBC Edna Church office, there is an old book titled Convention Church Records. Some of you guys saw that tonight before we began the lesson. In that book, originally published by the Baptist Sunday School Board, now known as Lifeway. How many of you guys have heard of Lifeway before? Okay, that book published by what is now known as Lifeway, the Baptist Sunday School Board. In that book, there is a handwritten record of some of the earliest members in FBC Edna in addition to a declaration of faith contained at the outset of that book. You guys saw that tonight. There's people in there listed from 1916. It's in our church office right now. Now, what is the substance of that declaration of faith found at the very beginning of the Convention Church record, that ancient book we all held together just a few hours ago. Well, that declaration of faith is none other than the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. That's in our church office right now. But we also have evidence that FBC Edna held to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith based on what we can find in the 1921 Guadalupe Baptist Association annual meeting minutes. I spent some time looking at that back on Tuesday. It's fascinating to hold in your hand documents that are 100 years old, literally. During that annual meeting, which, to make matters even more fascinating, that meeting was hosted at FBC Edna. During that annual meeting in 1921, and it was, it was the annual meeting of the Guadalupe Baptist Association right here at FBC Edna. During that meeting, it was recommended that in the Sunday School Report, quote, all our Sunday schools adopt the standard of excellence for Baptist Sunday schools as offered by the Baptist Sunday School Board, end quote. Okay, what does that mean? Well, think about this. What was one of the publications that would have been widely circulated throughout the entire Southern Baptist Convention by the Baptist Sunday School Board, by what we now know as Lifeway, in the 1920s. What do you think would have been among the resources being circulated? Any guesses? 
the very book that we held together this evening at the church, the Convention Church Record, which contains the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith as the Declaration of Faith, as the doctrinal statement in the opening pages of that book. That book would have been widely disseminated throughout the Southern Baptist Convention, and the doctrinal statement at the beginning of that book would have likewise been widely subscribed to throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. So between 1887 and 1921, there is substantial evidence to show that FBC Edna subscribed to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, both during its partnership with the Colorado Baptist Association and the Guadalupe Baptist Association. And as I've mentioned a few times tonight, and as you've looked at a few times tonight, as I've watched you as I've delivered this presentation, you guys have a, a handout that contains the totality of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. I wish we had time to read through the doctrinal statement in its entirety. Maybe some other time we can do so. Um, I gave you that handout, though, so you can read through it. There's a lot of scripture references there. would make for a good Bible study or a series of devotionals. But because we don't have the time to read through it tonight, I wanted to provide you with a little bit of nuggets to chew on in regard to this doctrinal statement. In my research for this lecture, I found the historical insights from Tom Nettles to be especially clarifying on the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. On the one hand, Nettles persuasively argues that the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith was overwhelmingly embraced throughout Southern Baptist churches during the 19th century. You asked a Southern Baptist what they believed in the 1800s, they would, without a shadow of a doubt, say, New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. It's written in 1833. Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845. It the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. That's what Southern Baptists believed in the 19th century, particularly the second half of the 19th century after the founding of the SBC. So Nettle shows that case. If you want the article, I can provide that for you. But on the other hand, looking to Nettles' historical scholarship once more, Nettles demonstrates how the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith would eventually lay the groundwork for what would become the standard confessional document in the Southern Baptist Convention and has been the standard theological and confessional standard for the Southern Baptist Convention for nearly the past 100 years. Anybody know what that document is called? The BFM. That's exactly right. The Baptist Faith and Message. So you've got the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith as the doctrinal statement our church held to and the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches held to throughout the majority of the 19th century. And out of that doctrinal statement, you have the organic production of what has now been the standard doctrinal and confessional standard in the Southern Baptist Convention for almost a hundred years now. That's the Baptist faith and message. Now, unfortunately, due to the largely illegible church conference meeting minutes prior to 1991, I can't go much further than this affirmation as to what FBC Edna held to prior to 2013. As I've shown you guys tonight, there's no doubt for the first 35 years of its history, FBC Edna held 
to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. There's no question about that. The real question is, has it always held to that since then? Up to this point in the research that has been invested into the history of our local church, I have not been able to find any objective evidence of FBC Edna embracing any doctrinal statement other than the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith until 2013. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, as far as I've been able to find, this church has held to that doctrinal statement formally since then. Now, as I mentioned at the outset of this lesson, I want to do it again for y'all and for the listener. It is certainly possible that details about later doctrinal statement changes are found in the handwritten church conference meeting minutes. And I wholeheartedly want to say, if that evidence is found, great. That fills in the gaps as to the, the, the doctrinal history of what this church has believed. Would, lo would love to find some clarity as to where FBC Edna went to, or went, where it went from 1921, or possibly a little bit later, to 2013. But I want to say this, and I may sound like a broken record here. If such evidence exists, if there is evidence at the FBC Edna church office to show that this church knowingly held to a different doctrinal statement after the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, it's going to require a very skilled and a very patient reader of handwritten documents in order to find that evidence for themselves. What's more, another historical observation I made over the course of the past week in preparing for this lecture, it appears that partnership in the Guadalupe Baptist Association no longer requires a partnering church to espouse the same doctrinal statement as the association. You see, as it presently stands, the Guadalupe Baptist Association affirms the 2000 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message. And as it presently stands, FBC Edna does not affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. In fact, if you survey the church conference meeting minute archives that are readable, the ones that are typed, you'll find that despite an effort to adopt the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and 2021, FBC Edna reaffirmed its commitment to the doctrinal statement that was adopted in 2013 during the May 23, 2021 church conference. So there was a recent effort to come into conformity with the doctrinal standards undergirding the Guadalupe Baptist Association to which our local church partners with, but the church decided by majority to not adopt that doctrinal statement. And as previously indicated, Despite affirming some core tenets of Baptist theology, our current doctrinal statement that was adopted in 2013 does espouse core tenets of Baptist theology. But also, at the same time, the 2013 doctrinal statement is not any additions of the Baptist faith and message, and it's certainly not the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. It's a doctrinal statement that's not compatible with either of those documents. There are inconsistencies between what Southern Baptists have historically believed with the Baptist faith and message and with, the, and with the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. There's inconsistencies between those documents and what Southern Baptists have believed throughout their denomination's history and what First Baptist Church of Edna currently believes. And despite those incompatibilities, despite those inconsistencies, 
FBCN is still able to partner with the Guadalupe Baptist Association without there being any issues. Now, why is that significant? Why include this observation in the lesson? Well, for one, it's part of our history. It needs to be included in there, give you an idea of where, where we used to stand in terms of our church's beliefs and where we presently stand. That's certainly important. But, my friends, this is an observation about a cultural shift that's occurred within at least the Guadalupe Baptist Association. This observation demonstrates how the dynamics of a local church's ability to partner with a local Baptist association has changed remarkably in just 100 years. In 1921, the GBA was meeting at FBC Ed and saying, we need to champion Sunday school resources produced by Lifeway, the Baptist Sunday School Board, which is championing the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. That's where we were at 100 years ago. And if you're going to be a part of the GBA, you need to be like-minded with us. It's a century ago. Now, apparently, you can hold to generic Baptist doctrine, but not necessarily embrace lockstep with the doctrinal standards of that association. That's a cultural change, and it appears to be a substantial relaxing of requirements to partner with a local association. And I want to challenge the listener and, and, and maybe some of you who may be interested in this subject. I think it would be an interesting and worthwhile study for somebody to investigate if that observation is commonplace throughout American Baptist life in the present day. Is it common today to be able to partner in a Southern Baptist association despite not being in lockstep agreement with the doctrinal beliefs, the theological standards of that association. That would be worth all the time and effort to be devoted to. I think it would be a fascinating study. But in any case, as I mentioned, this observation is just another vital part of the history that has unfolded at FBC Edna over the past 135 years. And in God's providence, this is the heritage of which we belong to. And as far as God um, sees fit, as long as He sees fit to keep us here in FBC Edna and as a part of this heritage, we need to strive to honor our Lord in every dimension of our local church, including what we believe as a congregation. So just as our history matters, what we believe matters as well. What we've believed in the past, what we believe in the present, and ultimately what this church will come to believe in the future. May God be glorified as we steward that in the generations to come. And we're almost there, guys. <laughs> that takes us to the fifth and the final section of tonight's lesson. And as usual, for the remainder of our time together tonight, as we draw everything to a close, we are going to engage in a season of group discussion. So, as always, I want to encourage you to provide any insights you feel led to provide as we go through these discussion questions. And I hope that we're able to have a fruitful time of interaction as a group with this lecture. So, question one. Let's see if you guys were paying attention way back when. Each of these questions correspond with the previous sections that we went through. So question one will be section one, question two, section two, three, three, four, four. You get the picture. Question one, what was the primary difference between a general Baptist and a particular Baptist. Joanne. Uh, 
of Christ on the cross dying for everybody's sins ever, anyone? Yeah. Versus dying for the sins of the elect. That's right. That's the difference. Particular, the, the atoning work was particular, uh, as Joanna mentioned, and general. It, the, the atoning work was universal in nature. Um, that's the difference between the two. The main difference. There's other differences as well, but um, if you're talking to just an ordinary person who has never really studied Baptist history before, it's pro- that's probably where you're, you need to go to. And, and, and frankly, that's probably where the discussion is going to be because I don't know if you guys were aware of this or not, but it tends to be controversial to say that Jesus may not have died for every single person who ever lived. And again... Both groups are Christians. You can be a general Baptist. You can be a particular Baptist. You're both going to be in the kingdom of God. And throughout history, though those denominations, general Baptist, particular Baptist, those were, those were within the Baptist umbrella. People tended to flock to those types of churches depending on their views. You also look at the history of the Southern Baptist Convention and find that there's also ways in which general Baptist people and particular Baptist people can coexist in the same context. So it doesn't always have to be divisive. It shouldn't be. In fact, in today's day and age, being a completely different context than back in those days with the rise of all the resources we have to study and the amount of ink that's been spilled on these subjects, there's so many ways you can learn to agree to disagree on some things and peacefully coexist in the same ministry context, if you're willing to do so. If you're willing to do so, you can coexist. Um, it's all about who, if you're willing to do so or not. Um, I certainly am willing to do so, and um, I would encourage others to do the same as well. Um, because, you know, there's enough room for us in the kingdom of heaven. And we mentioned the seven, the seven core tenets of what general and particular Baptists would have agreed to. They were both agreeing to that in those categories. Um, now, I'm not trying to undermine the importance either of did Jesus die for the whole world or did he die only for the elect? That's an important question to address and to have an opinion about. But it's not an essential matter. That's not a matter of salvation. You can be a general Baptist or a particular Baptist and you're still going to go to heaven regardless of where you land on that spectrum if you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. It's also not a matter of secondary importance. It can be if people aren't willing to, to peacefully come together and coexist, but it doesn't have to be secondary. It's typically been a tertiary matter, which you can have differences of opinion in the local church for. So important to recognize that and to note that here as we think about the primary difference between general Baptists and particular Baptists. The question two. Pretty straightforward question there at the outset. Question two, what was your opinion of ZN Wildcat Morell? We'll just start there because it's a multi-part question. So what do you think about the Wildcat? Hmm? What do you think about riding on a horse for 300 miles round trip once a month? Like what you just said, like that's just it kind of blows my mind. Like 
like his entire, not his entire life, but a, the majority of Most of it, from 18 to, died at 77, so, you know, almost 60 years of his life doing that. And, uh, you know, I think that he, he literally, like, he fought in battle. Like, he fought against Indians and the Mexican army, and he preached in the pulpit, and he rode on horseback hundreds of miles to plant churches and make sure associations were being formed that had common convictions theologically in, in their missionary endeavors as well. I mean, this guy was a Renaissance man, but Texas style. You know, this is a roughneck, blue-collar, tough guy that also had an unwavering resolve to see sound doctrine and sound missionary commitments being carried out in the Southern Baptist Convention, particularly in the state of Texas. Now, I'm shocked. You know, guys like this, nobody knows about. Like, I'd never heard of him until, like, last year. And I really didn't get acquainted with him until I prepared for this message. And I, the more I read about him, the more I want to just study and, and learn from um, Samantha, were you going to say something before I go on to the next part of the question? I'm, I'm really just shocked that someone so imperfect can do kingdom work. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's almost like uh, God uses broken, sinful vessels to accomplish his purposes, right? Um, I think, you know, morale, so positives and negatives, and that's the next part of the question. Samantha's got us going where we need to go. Um, let's start with the positives. We've mentioned a lot of positives. Clearly, the man of resolve, great resolve, tough guy, leader, you know. Um, what other things did you pick up on, positives from him? Hannah's already said, already said a lot, um, so kind of would be repeating yourself there. Okay, let's go to negatives then. How about that? What was the big negative that happened to him? So, he was a family man. What a family man. And what's your first ministry as a married man? To your, wife. to your wife, and then to your kids, and then to whatever ministries they trust you with. And I'm speaking from experience, it's very easy to lose sight of that. Because when you're in ministry, especially if you're in ministry leadership, you're going to be pulled in all kinds of different directions. Um, and you're going to want to do those things with excellence. And, and I feel like my personality type, I'm obviously not near as tough as Morel, but he seems very much like a a type, he wants to do a really good job, he goes the extra mile in everything that he does, and he, he's a guy that was, he would be, cons if he had a goal, he'd be consumed by it. He is going to get his goal accomplished no matter what happens. He's going to trust the Lord, he depends on the Lord, but I'm going to get this done. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this accomplished. And when, he, when you have a guy like that, it's easy to lose sight of other things that are also valuable, but they may not be at least in the, in the man's mind, they, they, they may not seem as important, but they are more important. And for Morell, he abandoned his family. You know, it sounds like the first, probably what happened is his first wife, he either wasn't that, he wasn't as busy, which I find hard to believe, because when he was married to the first wife, he's fighting in battles and he's preaching all over the place. Probably had a more understanding wife. He probably didn't change any. What probably happened, if I had to guess, is the first wife was more understanding. She dies. He marries a second time. She's more needy as far as wanting to spend time with him, different personality type. And he didn't probably cater to that as much as he should have. And she just left him. 
Um, and again, like I'm not saying that the that she should have done that. I'm not I'm not getting the wife off the hook, but it's clear he he did not do as good of a job with his family as Scripture calls him to do. And um, it's a good wake up call for us, you know, whether or not you're in vocational ministry. You can get consumed with other things in the place of your spouse or your kids. It could be your job. It could be your friends, extracurriculars, whatever. It's easy to get your priorities out of whack and to, to, not, follow, to not follow scriptural instructions regarding how your inner family relationship should work, particularly with your spouse and with your children. I know a lot of you guys, you youth-age kids, you know, you're still some years off from having to learn how to navigate those things. And I think, you know, I've only, I'm, I've only been married for be four years in May. I'm by no means an expert on this. I'm learning. I'm, I'm battling. I'm trying to grow in this area. But if you look at people who've been married for decades, they'll always tell you, you got to get your relationship with your spouse right. You got to get things taken care of in your house before you start trying to spread your wings and do a bunch of other ministries or other activities. It all starts with the home. So, Cy, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Any other thoughts on morale, negatives, positives, anything that we didn't touch on? Okay. Very good. I might check out that book. What was the title of that again? A really long title. Um, Flowers and fruits from the wilderness for 46 years in Texas and two winters in Honduras. What a title. Um, I want to read it now. Um, So, number three, from section three. What was your impression of the historical context from which FBC Edna originated? Let's start there. Did it surprise you to see that our church really struggled with poverty during the early days. I mean, like, think about what our church looks like. Frankly, I knew that different contexts, money, inflation, you know, it changes with time. But, like, a $6 offering, you know, like, that that's crazy to me. Sigh. In the case of Kentucky, the offering was $10. Wow. Okay, well... It's fascinating. So I've seen that kind of pottery. You know, that they even recorded that information. Yeah. Like, it didn't just say, we took up an offering, you know. They were very... They were great at keeping good records. For sure. And then the, the committee that could only raise $20 in five months. Oh, yeah. Like, it makes me wonder... $50 land. It makes I me wonder, like, what... It, what did they do to raise those funds? Like within their congregation, they couldn't. They couldn't do that. That's really hard to believe. Because I mean, we look at like this house, just this house. The church owns this. That house, the church owns our building, the SMB, Alec and Brittany's house. We've got other pieces of property as well. I don't know for what reason, but we've got them. Like I've been told, we've got other properties out there, and I'm like, man. This church has been blessed financially. But then I look at this, and I'm like, are we still talking about FBC? Like, this is the same church, and it is. Like, just goes to show you, I mean, and, and, and I'll say this. Despite the poverty, man, I read, like, that testimony of, like, when the church was founded. 
and I read of Richard Ellis, you know, who came before Colorado Baptist Association and um, like pe- men like that, you know, who were in those leadership roles in those contexts, those men, man, they love the Lord and God used them mightily. God works oftentimes more so in times of difficulty because it's in those times when his people depend upon him more. They don't have to, they, they don't have the mindset of, you know what, I've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, so let me just, you know, be wise and, and not mess this up and, and we'll get things done. Back then, you, you're literally waiting on the Lord to provide and to move. And I think that, especially in our Western context and us being in a church now, as, as affluent as we are, I think we lose that aspect sometimes of waiting on the Lord and relying on Him. I think that can be something that we lose sight of. Sorry, were you going to say something, buddy? It's also cool to see you go from six dollars and five cents to what two thousand dollars in one Sunday on average. At our at our church, yeah, yeah. yeah it'd be interesting to see what the what the comparison would be too on like what what the dollar inflation and, and those sorts of things would would do. And it just goes to show like God is not looking to use you for your money; He's looking to use you for your faithfulness to His word. Yeah, and how that's what's blessed because. I have a very humorous picture of Joel Osteen being laughed out of town. He came to tell people some of the messages he's still giving today. Back then. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, or just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, they only do good in very affluent contexts. Because if you go to a third world country and start preaching that message, like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Look around. What do we have to give you? You know what I mean? Like, we can't give you all this money in order for you to be, you know, you know, in order for God to bless me. I guess you could give livestock or something, but um, you're right. Back in those days, they wanted the Word of God preached. They wanted deep truth, and they wanted to live it out. They, it mattered to them. It really mattered to them to live out their faith and to hear God's word preached. Um, preach with power and preach with zeal. Um, but this was interesting too. I, I, part of my third question here. How about the senior pastor's role in those days? You're preaching at different churches. I, I wonder if that was to help them pay the bills because like, it was so hard to keep them on full time. Or if that was just like a regional thing where like here people would preach at two or three different churches on a rotational basis. Or if that was like a global SBC thing. That would be an interesting study, I think, for me. Because I I don't know what it looked like globally at that point, at least in America, in the SBC. But would you you imagine like Brother Robert, he'd be like, okay, I'm preaching here this Sunday. I'm going to Lolita the next Sunday. And then I'm going to Victoria the following Sunday. And I'm going to have this little rotation. And then other preachers from different churches filling in the pulpit when he's not here. It makes me think about, like, how, what did it look like for them to shepherd the congregation when they were moving so frequently? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one, it, it outlines the importance. During Westward expansion, this was very common for them to travel among different areas because we are a mission field. The right. church was their mission field. The mm-hmm. people from, you know, being the congregation 
was the pastor's mission field, and this is why there were elders and deacons and other people within the church who were still there from Sunday to Sunday and day to day in their own community mm. who were looking over the rest of the congregation and assisting the pastor pastor in their duties, right. in those pastoral duties. So this is how, you know, this is why God ordained this structure. Right. And when it's functioning correctly, we're not without stewardship. Right. Now that's a good word. You know, I also think, too, this is why having a like-minded doctrinal statement across the entire association is so important. Because imagine, if you've got guys who don't hold the same theology coming in every single week, you'd have so many contradictions. But if you have a like-minded association of pastors who are on that rotational basis, but they're, they're committed to the same truth, and they're feeding that truth. Yeah, these guys aren't just preaching the gospel every week. Like the gospel's being preached every week, but they're they're diving into the text. Like they're getting into the deep truths of the text. And if you've got people all over the map theologically, it would be impossible to have real spiritual growth in a church. You're gonna be very hindered if people don't know what which way's up and which way's down, and which guy's view is right here versus over here. Like you got to have continuity in order for growth to happen. So you mentioned shepherding, Hannah. The first thing that came to my mind was discipleship. And if you're going to have discipleship, you've got to have cohesion of view coming from the pulpit week in and week out. So, very fascinating context there. Would love, you know, I, I really would. I, I would love to see if this is common um, in those days. Rotational pastors. All right, number four. And this pertains to that little pamphlet that I passed out to you guys. When you examine a doctrinal statement like the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, what comes to your mind? And what value would a doctrinal statement like this bring to the spiritual health of a local church? So just by looking at our little New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith pamphlet, what initially comes to my mind, I see a lot of scripture references and I see um, a lot of different categories of theology. I'll just read off the headings for the listener. I won't read the paragraphs, I promise you, but I'll read the headings. Of the scriptures, so doctrine of scripture, of the true God, doctrine of God, of the fall of man, doctrine of man, anthropology, of the way of salvation, Soteriology, doctrine of salvation. Justification, again, soteriology of the freeness of salvation. Soteriology of grace and regeneration. Soteriology of repentance and faith. Soteriology, I wonder what they really emphasize. Uh, of God's purpose of grace. Soteriology of sanctification. Soteriology of perseverance of the saints. Soteriology of the harmony of the law and the gospel. Still soteriology. Of a gospel church, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. Of baptism and the Lord's Supper, ecclesiology. Of the Christian Sabbath, ecclesiology. Um, of the civil government. Um, doesn't really fit into any of the categories of doctrine that I can think of. So, practical theology. Um, of the righteous and the wicked, and of the world to come. Eschatology. So, you've got... You've got a lot of the different divisions of systematic theology being succinctly um, articulated here. 
in the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. And as we mentioned from the lesson, citing Dr. Tom Nettles, who's one of the foremost Baptist historians of our day, the Baptist faith and message came from this. It was an organic development from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, so what do you think? What do you, what do you think about having a doctrinal statement like this? Like, what does that do for a church? I, go ahead. So in that quote um, earlier comes to mind bear with me here here it is this is the quote from the Texas Baptist Herald 1887 about the founding of FBC Edna Elder Miller acted as secretary of the presbytery the elder board and read the letters, membership letters, articles of faith, doctrinal statement, New Hampshire Baptist Confession, and church covenant. Now, here's the thing. How did you join FBC? What did you have to do? Oh, yeah, you were baptized, but what did you have to do before that? Confession. Yeah, you had to, you had to walk down front. And you had to have the little form filled out, and you were baptized. You probably met with Brother Robert or whoever the pastor was. It might have been Danny Rees at that point in time. But you, you met with the pastor, and you were baptized. That was your membership process, right? Did I miss anything? Okay. Now, did anybody, in the midst of all of that, did anybody show you a doctrinal statement of what FBC Edna held to? Well, if it was pre-2013, there was there probably wasn't anything to show. There might have been, but there probably wasn't anything to show if it was pre-2013. But nevertheless, say, let's just throw that out of, the, out of the equation here. So, no doctrinal statement. And did um, you have to sign anything to say that you, that you agree to these requirements of being a member in good standing here. And if you violate these requirements, you can be disciplined up to the point of being excommunicated and losing your membership. Did any of you guys have any of that happen to you? In the context that that FBC Edna came out of, when they talk about church covenants and articles of faith, they're talking about articles of faith. This is the doctrinal statement that you must agree to to be a member of our church. This is within within these parameters, within these articles of faith. We can disagree on some of the finer details, but insofar as this article of faith, this declaration of faith, this confession of faith, whatever you want to call it, insofar as it's written, this is where we agree. Okay, so we agree on these things what binds us together. We believe this to be biblical. But then there's the church covenant. And the church covenant, historically, would be 
an outlining of the church, what the church is covenanting to you as a member of FBCN or whatever the church is. We as a church are promising you this, this, and this. This is what you're going to get from us as a church by joining our church. And then the one who's joining the church. As a member of FBC Edna, you are promising to do this, this, and this. And if this, this, and this is not met, these are the consequences. And that's when church discipline would come in. So to Hannah, your point is... This doctrinal statement, it preserves unity and it causes people to really be serious about joining the church. Um, when you've got to go through those kind of serious steps to join a church, what do, I, what do I believe? What does the church believe? If I join this church and I either you know, believe or teach doctrine intentionally that's contrary to this, um, I could be put on church discipline. Uh, if I act in these sorts of ways, I could be put on church discipline. And you're signing to that. You are consenting to that. That is church membership in, in, in a 18th and 19th century, even early 20th century Baptistic context. You'll be fascinated by this, guys. When I was at the Guadalupe Baptist Association office, going through the 1921 annual meeting minutes, there was a report given on the Christian Sabbath. This is not part of the lesson, but I, because the conversation went this way, I want to read this to you. You are going to be fascinated by this. And this wasn't just in the 1921 report. It was in a few others, at least two others, maybe three. But in the 1921 annual meeting minutes and a few others, and the last one was 1934, it would say things like this. Listen to this. The report on Sabbath observance. Both God's law and man's law forbid labor on the Sabbath day. God says, keep it holy. Man has violated this command and learned that immediate punishment did not follow. Communities have done the same thing. Feeling our temporary security, we have allowed this command to lose its force. Sabbath desecration is widespread and increasingly indulged, but we may rest assured that payday will come. God is not mocked. National decay, community decay, spirituality, and individual's life will decay in proportion as God's laws are ignored. We need an awakening on this subject. Preachers should preach it. Sunday school teachers should teach it. Prayer meetings should pray it, and all Christians should live it until the folks will heed it. There should be no compromise on this matter. Whatever our civil law forbids is Sabbath-breaking, Christian folk should see enforced, even at the risk of losing somewhat of their popularity or perchance losing a dollar in business. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, says God, and so says the Baptists of Guadalupe Baptist Association. To do that, we should not buy bread, ice, cold drinks, or anything else on Sunday neither start a trip on the train or finish one, nor tolerate picture shows or joyriding ourselves, nor permit our children to do so. Submitted by J.W. Cook. That was at this church a hundred years ago. And those convictions were echoed at least into the mid-1930s. So to think, you know, we, we start talking about what value does a doctrinal statement like that bring to the spiritual health of the church. That is how seriously... 
Christians used to take something as what we would deem as quote-unquote simple as how do we keep the Lord's Day holy? Nowadays, some churches can't even agree on what their doctrinal statement is or, what, or, or how to apply their bylaws in their context. In just 100 years, look how far Southern Baptists have fallen, particularly um, in the GBA. Look at the GBA today compared to back then. It's, it's just a completely different era, a, a completely different view of the Scripture. So in any case, yeah, I think there's great value in adopting a doctrinal statement of that nature, and um, I pray that FBC Edna at some point will adopt a doctrinal statement that's in keeping with um, the doctrinal standards of the Guadalupe Baptist Association. But guys, I appreciate your time tonight. I know it's been a long study. I promised it would be a long study, and I know I did not fail to deliver on that promise. So um, let me close us in prayer, and then you guys are free to go or hang out for as long as you want to hang out tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise your great name this evening because you are the God of history. From eternity past, there is not a single detail of redemptive history that you did not know at one and the same time. Father, your knowledge of history is coterminous with your own being. And God, your decree for redemptive history is nothing more than the eternal self-determination of the will that you share with your Son and your Holy Spirit. And because of your perfect knowledge, Father, your timelessness, your spacelessness, your omnipresence, and your omnipotence, there is not a time in which you fail to sovereignly reign over all that comes to pass in creation. And God, in light of even saying those things and thinking about those realities, we recognize that these are biblical truths that are beyond our ability to fully grasp. And Father, we recognize that the only appropriate response to such truths is to ascribe worship and praise to you. Forgive us when we fail to do so, Lord God. And Father, we pray that our contemplation of the history of the Baptist denomination in America and the history of First Baptist Church of Edna, Lord, we pray that we would be led to praise your great name and to magnify you for all that you have done to bring our history to where we are today. And God, would you know from your word that everything you have allowed to pass in Baptist history, in the history of FBC Edna, and in the individual history of our own lives, ultimately comes to pass for our eternal good and for the supreme glory of you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit. So Father, our prayer as we draw this time study to a conclusion tonight is that we would leave this place with hearts that are rejoicing in the privilege that it is to know the God of history, to have a very small part to play in that history, and ultimately, Father, to be promised that we will be with you in eternal history that has no end, God, communing with you, your Son, your Holy Spirit, the holy angels, and all the redeemed from every generation of human history forever and ever. I pray those thoughts would be an encouragement to all of us here tonight as we leave this place. Would they motivate us to be good and faithful servants in the context that you have placed us in? And Father, would we be your ambassadors here at FBC Edna, 
or our respective local church for those who aren't a part of FBCN. And would we be your faithful ambassadors wherever you call us until our earthly death or until Christ returns for us in glory. We commit all this to you in his holy and precious name.